let me start with what's new um, in the world of cooperation. Um, one is the problem of international relations in which a established power of the United States is dealing with a rising power of China. And uh, there is an experience uh, from an ancient Greek historian Thucydides who said that the reason why Athens and Sparta fought is that uh, Athens was a rising power, Sparta was the established power, and they couldn't work it out. And more recently, Graham Allison at Harvard um, looked at the last 500 years for all the cases in which a established power was dealing with a rising power. And he found 16 of them, and 12 of them led to war. That's not a good odds. And Who uh, yes? Who won? Who won which one? Of the rising powers and those established powers. I'm just curious. Um, he didn't calculate that way. I'm not sure. <laughs> if you would, I mean, you would say, for example, World War I and World War II, the rising powers in both cases was Germany, and we know which one they lost. <laughs> um, but not always, of course. Now, um, one of the ways of dealing with this is to try to develop norms and rules of the road for understanding what's proper behavior. And I'm working with uh, um, a Chinese delegation, an American delegation that's, that's meeting regularly, especially in the context of the question of, of cyber conflict, where if, large, if cyber weapons were used on a large scale, what, uh, it looks unstable in the way that nuclear weapons are not unstable. And so we're dealing with how to develop norms for uh, understanding cyber tools, cyber weapons. So that's one area of, uh, uh, of important uh, need for cooperation. Another is that you're all very familiar with is the decline of democratic norms, uh, not only in the United States, but um, in many other countries, especially in Europe, where the basis for uh, societal cooperation in the sense of governance uh, are deteriorating. Um, a third area is climate change, where uh, one could certainly look at this as a technical problem, and I hope uh, technical progress can be made. Um, but it's also a collective action problem of um, getting large numbers of actors uh, to work together. And then there's the, now I'll turn it directly to interdisciplinarity, because that's another area where cooperation is needed and is not trivial to attain. Um, the research on what makes interdisciplinarity succeed when it does and what are its characteristics uh, has exploded in the last uh, 10 years, in part because of the ability to um, do large-scale analysis of things like citations and, and see whether uh, people who are, uh, publish articles together from different uh, disciplines are more successful in, say, achieving citations. And um, there's a few things that are known. Um, one is that interdisciplinary research is higher variance. Uh, it's, not, it's not a higher average. A success, but it's higher variance, and so sometimes it really does very well, and many times it does not so well. And so it's not necessarily that interdisciplinary work is going to be, uh, that more of it is better. Um, I think if we could understand better the barriers to make it work, we could maybe change that. 
Another finding is about preferential attachment. This one's almost trivial, but the idea is that if you work with somebody, you're likely to work with them again. And maybe other people, and maybe in second order, that maybe you work with people that worked with them again. Uh, that's not too exciting. Another, another result is that you can map uh, the, the disciplines in two dimensions such that distance represents the probability of collaboration so that you have a lot more collaboration between, let's say, f um, physics and chemistry than you would between physics and sociology. Um, that's not surprising, and um, I think the, the maps that it gets you um, look plausible and reasonably stable. But that's not a lot of knowledge about interdisciplinarity. Um, the questions that I've been interested in more recently are um, about collaboration and what can make it work and succeed, and also about the evolution of disciplines themselves. So on collaboration, um, we're, the part of it that is well understood is that if a team has a diversity of tools and backgrounds available to them, they come from different cultures, they come from different um, um, knowledge sets, then that allows them to search a space and come up with solutions more effectively. So diversity is very good for teamwork. But the problem is that there's clearly a, uh, a barriers to people from diverse backgrounds working together and making something out of it. Uh, and that part of it is not understood very well. The way people usually talk about it is that they have to learn each other's language and each other's terminology. So if you talk to somebody from a different field, they're likely to use a different word for the same concept. That also comes up with Americans talking to Chinese about uh, military things. And, but that seems to me just part of it. And um, another part of it is whether uh, they have common um, uh, goals. For example, each if there's two different disciplines, the researchers might want to publish in journals from their own disciplines so that their own peer group will recognize the contribution. And that could be a conflict of interest between them that they need to work out. The other problem is that, they, that, um, that what they come up with in a, in a collaborative interdisciplinary activity may not be recognized as um, a contribution by any field. And this is especially true when there's new fields. So, but, and one of the things, though, that does make uh, at least the ones, the interdisciplinary activities that I've been involved with, one, I, I've asked myself what makes some of those work. And one of them is uh, having some tools in common, for example, game theory. So game theory is understood as valuable and, and taught in much of the social science, but also in the biological sciences. Um, and so being able to collaborate um, with someone who uh, knows game theory and I know game theory gives us a chance to uh, make progress bringing together the things that one or the other of us doesn't know. Um, so Ian uh, mentioned civil war in the body uh, as a interesting aspect. Um, so uh, I saw an agent-based simulation. I assume most people know what agent-based simulation means. Okay. Um, of uh, a growing cancer. And the agents were the cells. 
And uh, I asked the, uh, the computer scientist that developed that with a student, uh, what are the premises that go into that uh, simulation? For the, what are the mechanisms? They pointed me to an article on the hallmarks of cancer. And it turns out that there are about eight different defenses that the human body has to keep cells in line from becoming selfish and asking for more resources than is good for the host. Um, and the, the common understanding was that um, a single cell line develops the mutations necessary to overcome each of those defenses. But when I saw the simulation and read about the mechanisms, I realized that that wasn't necessary, that it could be, and let me give you the analogy to switch. Uh, um, if you have two thieves robbing a house, and one of them knows how to turn off the alarm, and the other one knows how to pick the lock, they don't both have to know how to overcome the defenses, as long as they're traveling together. And so in cancer, uh, some of the defenses are overcome by putting out a certain chemical saying, uh, uh, build a capillary in my direction, as basically asking for more blood and more oxygen. Uh, and, but another, another cell nearby might be asking, might be uh, exceeding its um, normal capacity for, to, to do something which would overcome another defense. And so as long as they're together, you, you don't need both, a single cell line. And so uh, that would uh, help uh, give you another uh, channel for um, therapy, possibly, which would be to interrupt this uh, cooperation among the cell lines. So, I went to uh, a geneticist and then later an oncologist, and we worked out um, some of the implications of this. Um, and first of all, to find that it hadn't actually ever been explicitly stated. And secondly, it was, it was biologically plausible. So we, uh, we wrote this up. So here was a, a collaboration between a political scientist, an oncologist, and a geneticist. Um, when we proposed this speculation about how things might be, we got two reviews. Um, one of them said what we were proposing was impossible. And the other one said what we were proposing everybody knows. Anybody ever had a pair of reviews as, as, ch as challenging as that? <laughs> well, obviously we didn't explain ourselves very well, so we uh, picked ourselves up the floor, off the floor, rewrote it, and tried to explain why it's neither impossible nor the same thing that people know. So what provided the, I'm sorry? It's a common situation. Yeah. So what provided the basis for the collaboration is that uh, one of us, me, was looking at this from sort of a social science perspective of a, of, of, of a community action and, uh, and, and cooperation. And the others were, uh, had the competence about how, uh, how cancer works. And so, um, it was working on a known problem. A known problem is, you know, how does the uh, how does civil war um, in in your body get uh, controlled, and how does it lose control? And I think one of the uh, uh, one of the opportunities for success is if there's already a known problem, and then you provide um, another way of uh, of attacking it or making progress on it. As long as the problem is. Um, accepted in at least one discipline, then it seems to me you could use any tools and any new concepts as long as you can make progress in the terms that the people that care about that problem understand. If it's a problem that they don't realize they have, it's much harder.
let me, okay, let me talk about the, um, the evolution of disciplines, which is one way to think about this, because what the, uh, uh, one way to, to, to approach uh, disciplines is um, to see them as like an ethnic group or a language group where the people within a discipline are able to talk to each other very well, relatively well. And that's part because the disciplines be have become institutionalized so that anybody that calls themselves an economist or a geneticist knows a whole bunch of stuff that almost every other economist and every other geneticist in these two cases would know. And so they can talk to each other in the areas that the discipline has defined as, a, as building on their canon, in effect. Um, and that's fine, but the, it's sort of like a gravity model in the sense that then the disciplines become more and more coherent over time, and that makes it easier. There's a, there's a then there's a body that of, of uh, concepts and terminology and science and, and previous experiments and so on that are shared, and that makes that kind of collaboration easier. But there's another group over here that has coalesced in a different place in this high-dimensional space. And um, as they each coalesce, they become further apart. The, 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 there's fewer people in, in between. And uh, my, now another analogy might be like Spanish, French, and German. There used to be a whole series of, um, of dialects that are more or less continuous across that space. And uh, eventually, um, those three countries um, uh, established the uh, yeah, the canonical way of saying German, French, and Spanish and taught it in the schools, um, which was very useful for in the Industrial Revolution when you want people from a distance to be able to deal with each other. Uh, and then it, it wiped out most of the stuff in between, such as you know, with, say, Catalun Catalonia being a, uh, a uh, surviving exception. Um, and in disciplines, we've uh, converged. And the convergence is not just on subject matter, but it's incredibly well institutionalized so that departments um, not only represent disciplines, like you have a physics department and an economics department, they control careers. They decide who to hire. And therefore, professionals have a, a strong need to be attractive to at least one of those disciplines. Not only that, but they control the entry. They control the training process to say, what does it take in order to get a PhD in, in X or Y? Uh, they also control, to some extent, not as completely, the journals um, and, the, uh, and, and the major um, professional conferences. They don't control the small ones, small journals or small, smaller conferences. So when a group like us gets together for, with different backgrounds and tries to communicate, um, a question arises, well, there's several questions about whether there's an emerging discipline um, of, say, a brain intelligence, uh, and neuro and cognitive psychology. Um, and because the, uh, all those disciplines are so well-established and institutionalized, it's not easy. So it's easier to get a center going, perhaps, but it's very hard to um, then get the established groups to say, we'll give you some tenure lines, we'll give you some faculty, we'll give you some resources and some course credits and the ability to grant the PhD under your duress, under your uh, uh, label. The, uh, the way these things have coalesced is to some extent a frozen accident. 
not completely an accident because there really is a difference between what chemists study and what physics study in a matter of scale, for example. Uh, but in other fields, uh, it, it's not as obvious where the boundaries would be if you started over again, or, or more to the point, where they should be now. Um, and you can't erase the boundaries and just redraw them. And several places have tried that. Carnegie Mellon and Irvine are famous for having redrawn boundaries and tried it. And you could see that the problems they have are include the fact that they can't uh, develop a cascade of reorganization across the academic community. And so they are then at a disadvantage, let's say, on whether their PhDs are hireable um, and whether um, the, 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 um, the cluster of things that they teach in one of their department, one of their structures corresponds to, doesn't correspond to what anybody else does. The, um, the evolution of disciplines seems to be, um, take several forms. One is, the um, splitting off of a single, a single discipline into several disciplines, or usually one, like maybe astronomy is on the edge of being separated from physics in some places and not others. Um, uh, psychology, uh, clinical psychology is quite different from most, uh, say, developmental uh, or uh, cognitive uh, psychology, but they're still holding together. Sometimes a, a new discipline can arise from uh, the territory between, like biochemistry in some places is a new discipline. Um, and, that, and I think that one of the um, constraints that uh, helped define this is how much can a PhD candidate learn in five years? They can learn a set of tools, concepts, experiments, and common things. Uh, and when a single discipline um, is in the situation that uh, parts of what is being done takes five years to learn and parts of what is being done takes a, a different set of five years, then it's pretty ripe for separating those things out and giving them different names and then different, and, and, and uh, having fission. And that's certainly one, one way that happens. And another way, though, is more typical of this room, which is where people from many different disciplines are working on some problem area, like what is intelligence, how does the mind work, um, how can we uh, um, accomplish a more effective AI and what would it mean to do that. Uh, and so we can gather together in this room and try to um, understand each other, um, which is certainly a, a significant task. Uh, which can be uh, promoted by having repeated meetings of, over, of largely overlapping people. Um, but it's, it's hard to, uh, to buck the um, established institutional frameworks. Um, Caroline mentioned uh, just before lunch the, uh, the topic of immunology and how the immune system has a kind of intelligence. And let me give you another collaborative example from, of mine uh, dealing with the immune system. So I had worked with evolutionary biologist uh, Bill Hamilton on, um, on evolution of cooperation in uh, biological systems. And that, uh, but uh, then he later, years, a couple of years later, came to me and he said he had a theory of the origin of sex. And the theory was that it's an adaptation to resist parasites. That seems very strange. And it goes like this. Parasites uh, 
want to uh, or have an incentive uh, biological uh, selection pressure to look as much like you as they can. And if they look really like you, then your immune system will not identify them as non-self. So, so you can imagine a high-dimensional space that is the, basically the antigens um, in which you're located here and, um, and the parasites can evolve to um, become more and more similar to that uh, and eventually perhaps get to the point where you don't recognize them as foreign. Now, they have an advantage because they can reproduce uh, perhaps 100 or more time, times faster than you can. So they can um, out, outrace you as you run away from them. And when I mean you, I mean actually your, your progeny over generations. And so um, Bill Hamilton's idea was that here's what sex does for you. It says there's one adult here and one adult here. They're really quite different in their, uh, how they present themselves to uh, their immune systems and, and to parasites. And if you could take some of the genes from this one and some of the genes from that one, you've made a huge jump in this high dimensional space. You haven't just moved incrementally. Like if you had asexual reproduction, your children would be very much like you. But if it's sexual, then from the point of view of the antigens, you're really very different. And therefore, sex is an adaptation to resist parasites. So he said, now to test that, or to at least show that theoretically, kind of a proof of principle that that's plausible, because the problem it has to account for is that only half of the adults have offspring. This is a tremendous biological disadvantage. It's a, it could be up to two for one. That's a lot to overcome. So there's got to be some really powerful things on the other side. And to show that, that at least it, that's plausible, um, he said he, was, he, he tried to model this as uh, being explicit about the, um, let's say, three uh, characteristics of your adult, and then if you have three others from the other adult, and you, and you mix those, uh, uh, and then model that. But he couldn't do the math after about three. And it doesn't work for three. So I said that uh, I had learned about the genetic algorithm from John Holland, where you can have long strings of chromosome simulation, like 70 is no sweat. And he said, that's just what I need. And so we did some simulations. Um, with chromosomes of length 70, and then you, that's enough to make the, the search problem hard and make sex valuable. So what we had then was a, uh, um, he had a pro the problem of, of um, why we have sex was is a well understood problem. I mean, I mean, it's well understood that that's a serious problem in, in Darwinian theory uh, because the two for one disadvantage is so is so great. And there's another explanation for why the sex is the answer. Uh, but this one looks pretty cool. And, it, and so this allowed me to take something from uh, um, computer science search technique and adapt it for a, a simulation of a evolutionary biology uh, technique. OK, so let me conclude by saying two things, one quickly which is we are now faced with the question of human-computer interactions, uh, or human uh, cognitive, uh, intelligent uh, um, AI systems. And that is a lot like disciplinarity. The humans have some set of concepts, and the artificial intelligence system will have another set of tools, concepts, ways of organizing the world and thinking. And how can we promote the um, cl effective collaboration of humans and intelligent systems? And then the other question is, how do you guys do 
and what is your experience um, with if, uh, effective collaboration across disciplines? I have a basic question. Is there a, has anybody made a giant wall chart of the, of the evolution of disciplines over the last few hundred years? Of the years? evolution of... <laughs> What's that? Uh, I'm sorry, did they of make the a evolution chart? of disciplines of over disciplines. the last few hundred years. I've never seen such a thing. I've seen bibliometrics pictures yeah. of um, blobs of things of, you know, where is the physics, where is the neuroscience Yeah, that's it. yeah so there's sort of snapshots of today. Right. Um, has anybody made that evolution? No, I've looked for that too. Hmm. No. There, there is... Um, some histories of universities that have been around a long time, and you could say when University of Padua separated philosophy from law or something like that. No, no. Uh, but I haven't seen it um, more generic in that way, and that would be interesting to do. Um, let me give you a, well, okay, it's out there. Let's see, Stephen, could you derive it? From, from all, all the data you've ingested. <laughs> no, I was wondering. That was the, I, you know, one, you know, the, the web of science, the science citation index, yeah. is hard to get access to. There's now this open citation project where people are, you know, journals are contributing their citation metadata that started maybe two years ago or something now and is gathering steam. But that data is, is mostly fairly recent data. Erez Lieberman got all of Google book data, and he did a surprisingly good job of deriving history. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a funny situation, because in academia, people are typically, there isn't management of, of research in academia. In a company, there is management of research. And it's kind of interesting what the trade-offs are between managed research and unmanaged research. The historians, you know, like to see the pattern of disciplines um, as infinite proliferation, you know. So uh, the phrase Renaissance man is kind of invented in the 17th and 18th century to describe a lost nostalgic moment of wholeness, right, when you, when you possessed all disciplines in one person. So it was already acknowledging that there were divisions happening. Um, what do you see the main difference? I'll tell you, for, for my company, and I can't say this very scientifically, but over 30-something years, we've sort of developed the concept that we're going to put together these teams of people, and the people will have different expertise, and they will work together. Uh, there were, you know, in earlier times, that was actually hard to achieve, but we finally got to the point where people culturally expected that, you know, people from different backgrounds would put together in teams. Now, I don't know whether that happens in universities as effectively. Well, it's something that took a long time to achieve for us. How about in this series of conferences? Have we got oh, to talk right. to each other? And <laughs> understand each other? I don't remember who it was who said the best interdisciplinary conversations take place inside one person's head. <laughs> <laughs> I attended a university in which uh, the vice chancellor's project in the early 60s, days of great optimism in Great Britain, uh, was to redraw the map of learning. And interestingly enough, every student of the humanities was required to read three books. One was Turner's thesis on the expansion of the American West. One was Jacob Burkhardt's uh, Civilization of the Renaissance. And the other was Tawney's Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. On the understanding that you could not approach the humanities without a background in historiography, the nature of history and the changing ways in which history is studied. 
Uh, and that whole project lasted about 15 years and then was swept away. When I go back to my old university, it's, there's the history department, the English department, a kind of inertia dragged it back. You already gave the answer to your question, which is that, or Hamilton did in the sense that this beautiful explanation for the origins of sex, which is the, the same reason you should have these interdisciplinary things because it allows you to outrun the parasites who build up in the history of the world. Sex is the ultimate interdisciplinary act. The internal problem of errors and replication that accumulate without, you know, without yeah. hybrid, hybridization, right? So self-replication without hybridization risks a lot of errors and repetition of errors and accumulation of errors. Maybe I could ask a question about disciplines and their evolution, because, you know, you see a discipline in its first generation. The people who founded the discipline are still around. They still know what the fundamental questions are. They're still often a bit insecure about their, the foundational things that the discipline is based on. And then, then, you know, you get to more generations, and by the time you're at third generation of people, they, they never even discuss the, the... Typically, they don't even discuss the foundations. It's just assumed. My question would be, if you look at the period of maximum fertility, maximum lasting effect of a discipline. Is it the case that most of it is it, you know, is it in the first 10 years? Is it in the first 25 years? Is it in the first generation? Which, uh, which generation? I mean, should disciplines be euthanized after they've gone through five generations, for example? Because, they'll, because they basically won't produce significant output after, by the time they've gone through five generations of people. I doubt that. It seems to me that's a little like saying, should we get rid of some uh, culture because it's been around a long time Fair and enough. it's worked? as much out as it can, that seems so. Well, that's, that's an extreme version, but my question yeah, yeah, yeah. is, at what point in the curve? It's like, you know, it's true with conferences, for well, example. one thing is that uh, the paradigms can get mature and uh, stale, but disciplines are richer than the, can, can change paradigms, as Kuhn says, and that's a possible form of regrowth. Let me give you an interesting example of biology, uh, where um, the, 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 the disciplines of biology have been now reorganized turn 90 degrees. It goes like this. It used to be botany and zoology, right? Plants and animals. And now it's skin in and skin out. So skin out is uh, ecology and evolution. Skin in is like microbiology. And so they just turn the whole thing sideways. Uh, and so that's a, a, a case where, there, and it still is, I think, more fluidity in biological, uh, in the structure of biological disciplines there are in any else. Maybe that's because there's more things being discovered faster. Let me just say another thing about the disciplines are often tool-based. You get microscopes, you get microbiology. You can't have my, and, uh, and as we get tools to deal with uh, uh, artificial intelligence, for example, then it gives us uh, an ability to see psychology in new ways. Yeah, I think an analogous rotation is happening in psychology where you have, you know, neuroscience as one set of methods, which then includes social neuroscience and clinical neuroscience and so on, and then behavioral psychology as another set of methods that, you know, and those things, as you were saying before, would have traditionally been clinical psychology and cognitive psychology, social psychology and so on, but then getting rotated around into behavioral methods versus neuroscientific methods, where the questions that are being asked in those groups are now starting to be, I think, 
probably the new discipline or new restructuring is the evaluation of performance. Um, because the people in the new field will tend to say that anybody else in the new field is worth uh, valuing, worth promoting, worth funding. And people outside don't necessarily can, can see that as kind of special pleading. And because it's a new discipline, it doesn't yet have uh, well-established, for example, old journals uh, hierarchies, so you can say that's the best journal in the field. Or, and even if you could say the best journal in this new field, you can't necessarily say how that would rank among other field, among other things in a broader area, um, and that inability to um, to do uh, high quality and, and consensual evaluation uh, outside of a discipline, for, outside of a new area, means that it's a, um, a comparative advantage for somebody not very good to go into the new area. That's also because and that mean, that, that in turn leads to a uh, suspicion people in the old area, that the new area is attracting people that couldn't do successfully the old thing. Not that they weren't interested in it, but, or that they were pioneers in some sense, but maybe because they, they would, uh, they, they see they would thrive in some area where the evaluation is harder. So sometimes the, what can happen to an old field is particularly one where the founders, of, the original founders of the field might not have been the nicest people in the world, is that they can get extremely grumpy, they refuse to cite each other. They, who was telling us about an NSF panel where there are these three solid state physicists on this NSF panel, and they recommend that none of the proposals be funded. <laughs> so, so I'm curious about, one thing I've noticed in the creation of new fields is, you ask who are the people who come into a new field when it's created, right? So, for example, are they young people, are they old people, What's the, what's the type of person who comes into a new field when it's created? The thing I've noticed, things I've been involved in, I've been surprised that it's not just young people who come into a new field. And it seems to be the case that there's, you know, there are fields or paradigms that are suitable for particular individuals for one reason or another. And if they're lucky enough to live at a time in history when their paradigm is one that is, you know, being pursued, then they gravitate to that and they start doing it. The thing I've noticed over, I don't know, data for maybe 25 years worth of data for different kinds of things, is that my anecdotal observation, I'm curious what other people have seen, is that if you look at the people who come into a new field when it's young, and then you wait 20 years or something, about half the people who came into the new field when it was young are still in that field, and half have gone on to do three new fields or something after that. I think there's an interesting tension that comes up with what Tom was saying about when fields bifurcate in terms of methodology or when they bifurcate in terms of content. So in some ways, the methodological differences make it harder to communicate because the tools are different. But on the other hand, my experience has been that when you actually had successful interdisciplinary cases was when you could get people using different methods who were trying to answer the same question. And maybe sometimes having a question that's even narrower than the kind of question you'd think, typically think of as being a domain question. So, you know, not how are we going to solve the problem of the mind, but how are we going to, my example is, how are we going to figure out how causal inference works? That's a nice example of something that we actually succeeded in getting real interdisciplinary, uh, where we actually succeeded in getting real interdisciplinary work. Or how are we going to figure out how people figure out what's going on in other people's minds and what came to be called theory of mind. That was, that really promoted genuine interdisciplinary work. And that was because you had people with different methods who were trying to solve the same who are trying to solve the same problem. So there's a, a tension where the, I think that's much more likely to work than 
in fact, I can't even think of examples where what would happen is that you'd get a bunch of people together because they said, oh, well, we're all using the same methods and we want to find out more about the common methods even though we're solving different problems, maybe? That's imagine. most scientific conferences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We tried collaboration across disciplines and it didn't work. And why? Well, I've, had, I've been done a great, like you, I've done a lot of interdisciplinary work and, and effectively invading a number of fields. And some fields very much don't like being invaded, and uh, but uh, they also at the same time they're flattered that that somebody's paying attention to them. For instance, this field of quantum mechanics and photosynthesis, which uh, which I and some friends from the quantum information community realized that we could actually make some reasonable contributions to this field starting about ten years ago. And this is a field, a small field, full of grumpy old men. They're all men who never cite each other's work. It's a, you know, it's like, you know, the the the, the maxim that science proceeds one death at a time. Well, at one of the conferences, I said, you know, this these people people in this field, I'd never met a field so closed in. You can only make progress in your own specialty by dying yourself. <laughs> so the graduate students thought it was very funny, but the professors didn't you think had, it was very funny. The problem of, of how does photosynthesis work <clears throat> was obviously accepted as an important, photosynthesis is obviously accepted as an important thing, yeah. an obscure thing. And how it works was understood that, I mean, it was already understood that they didn't have a complete satisfactory account and therefore, if you could provide an, a, a better account, then they could appreciate that that's a contribution, no matter what tools you use to get. But he's saying it was cranky, and they didn't well, accept it. No, they did. No, it, it ended up it ended up being accepted because the you know so they did they did need to learn about it, and they didn't understand what was going on with quantum coherence, and the methods that we supplied did allow them to figure that out. But boy, did they 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 were dragged kicking and screaming to this, and yeah. and you know would never uh, still you know don't want to cite the books and things like that. Uh, you mentioned that you've gone back to science rather than uh, killing, writing up this book you were talking about. So what is your science? Like, what, how would you define advances in the science? Because I, I don't quite understand uh, what the field is, basically. Um, well, I, mean, I, I guess I put it two ways. One is uh, my field is um, uh, international relations, and especially great power relations, and especially uh, issues of war and peace. Okay, so that that's the, the core of my career interests, and. Um, but the other side of it, uh, if I another direction, is that I'm a math modeler. And I'm looking for opportunities to do math modeling, and in particular, tends to, what I tend to like is agent-based modeling, and Santa Fe Institute kind of complexity work. Um, and I'm an opportunist, and I'm a curious person. So if I see a model of uh, simulation of cancer, I say, how does that work? Um, and uh, I, I, I make a real effort to uh, meet people and talk to them often over lunch and sometimes at meetings, um, as all of you guys are if you're, since you're here. Um, and then I, uh, and so my field could be something different. I mean, I, I haven't um, uh, done anything specialized in artificial intelligence, but um, I'm fascinated by uh, by it. And uh, and I could see, for example that as a social scientist, what I could see is that if 
uh, if you take the uh, autonomous vehicles, which are our best example currently of sophisticated artificial machines that are being built in, in Calumetic, that while the uh, one approach and a common approach is a technical one, can you make them more and more sophisticated and more and more able to understand uh, its environment and avoid mistakes, but a whole other approach is that what's going to hold it up is, li is legal liability questions, not, not the technical quality questions. It's already 10 times better than humans. Uh, the problem is who's going to take responsibility for the accidents and how do we, how do we institutionalize that judgment right? so that between the insurance companies, between the manufacturers, between the owner of the car, between the person that sets the, uh, um, the parameters. Last question. I, I would ask, would you recommend to a junior faculty member in your department or in a biology department to pursue interdisciplinary work? Um, Certainly there's a good <laughs> I have a related question, which is there are fields that privilege single author yeah. and fields that privilege multiple authors. And I think the answer would be different well, based on these two models. One, one thing I certainly would say is that in order to get tenure, the tenure committee wants to know how good a bet you are in the long run. And let's say all of your work is done with a senior person, the same one senior, senior person. Well, that's not a way to build up a, a record that then could be evaluated. So if you're going to do collaborative work, two things you should do. One is collaborate with different people so that they could say that the intersection of that kind of stuff was probably you, or to have a certain character, like you're the one that brought differential equations to the sociologists or whatever, so there's something distinctive. Um, and the other is to make sure that your single-authored work is among your best work. Because if it's not, then they're going to say, well, that, if that's your average quality, then that's going to attribute that to all the collaborative work. So uh, work with different people and make sure that your single authored stuff is among your best. Thank you, Bob.